So, the Lord led me to this great text. It's one of my favorite. I've been telling you for six months. Uh, that you need to radically obey the Lord in the world? Yeah, for about six months, I think. Bam. Has it been longer? It's been longer. Probably it's like in every sermon. Um, But I often say to you, um, you don't have time. You know, you just don't have time to get lost in the minutiae. And this text talks about this, right? Because we are what? We are vapors upon the earth, right? We don't have time to get lost in the minutiae. We don't have time to give ourselves to temporal things. We have a very brief time on the planet and God has left us here to be His witnesses. So, I wanted to start by saying, I think, and you tell me if you agree, there's a vast and almost always intimidating chasm between knowing and doing, between believing and and acting between the theoretical and the applied. I dare say that we all purport to believe a host of things we've never yet put into practice. Amen? I don't know. Um, I think that would probably be true of all of us. I love what American theologian R.C. Sproul said about this. I never forgot it. I heard this maybe 25 years ago. Um, he said it to this effect. I'm going to paraphrase him, but he said, that most who profess to be Christians are merely theoretical theists. Now, I I talk to you about this a lot. I talk about uh, the fact that as real Christians, born-again Christians, disciples of Jesus, none of of the things we talk about from Scripture are theoretical. They are not theoretical. R.C. Sproul says, most who profess to be Christians are theoretical theists and live like practical atheists. I don't know if you would agree or not. It's been my experience as a Christian for 30 years that I see uh, quite a few theoretical theists and not a lot of practical theists, actual theists who actually do the Word. A lot of theory going on in what is called the modern church. Not as much doing going on. And I think this is one of the things that the Lord is saying to us tonight. And it's at least partially true in all of our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm still uncovering and dealing with things in my own life that I've not yet given completely over to God. Um, I don't know if that's true for you. We know what Christ has called us to do, and yet we still find in ourselves this predisposition to go our own way. I, I don't know if, if you guys struggle with this. We find this, that our, our default mindset is, I want to do what I want to do, you know, today. Today I want to do what I want to do. That tends to be our default mindset most of the time. So, who knows what the word epiphany means? I love this word. It's a great word. Who knows what it means? Epiphany. Nobody knows what it means. Couldn't define it for you. <laughs> huh? You know what it means, but you can't define it. I know. Don't you hate that? It's like the English language sometimes. A, solution or a, new, idea. a new idea. That's very good. Uh, let me give you the dictionary definition. A comprehens- Excuse me. A comprehension or perception of reality by means of a sudden intuitive realization. That's what you meant, right? 
a sudden intuitive realization. You have these all the time, right? And I was going to share with you uh, one of my, I guess, best remembered epiphanies. I was standing on a street corner in Parkville, Missouri. It was late fall, 2000. Karen and I had been invited to come and pastor this church on an interim basis um, with no guarantee of income, and this was weighing heavily on me. Um, Actually, I tell this story in the book as well. Um, And I'm standing on the street corner, I'm waiting for the traffic to clear, and bam, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you know, lays an epiphany, uh, uh, an epiphany on me. And here it is. Okay, I'm about to graduate from seminary. It's a 90-hour degree. 90 hours. Okay, I knew a lot of stuff about God, right? I knew a lot of stuff about the Bible. And I'm standing on that street corner, and the Holy Spirit had to connect a few dots for me. And the question that came up in my mind, if God, if you really believe He's God, if God is who God says He is, why do you worry about going to Italy with no promise of income? If God is who I say I believe He is, why do you worry about going to Italy with no promise of income? God, Jim, do you think God is God in Italy too? I mean, this was the epiphany I had. I know it sounds very fundamental for a, a Master's of Divinity student about to graduate. But here's the deal. If we really believe, and I've been saying this to you for six months, if you really believe He's God, you should never shrink back. We should never shrink back. And, you know, by the time I started to cross the street, uh, I knew we were going to come to Italy. And um, it was a blessed epiphany that the Holy Spirit gave me, a sudden intuitive realization. And I just want to challenge you. If God is who He says He is, why would you ever be afraid to obey Him in the most extreme and radical ways? Why would you ever shrink back? Why would you ever shrink back? I've said this to you many times as well. Uh, I hope the power of it is not lost on you, but American preacher John Piper is right when he says, bad theology hurts people. Some of you have heard me say this a lot. Bad theology hurts people. Bad theology leads to wrong believing, which leads to wrong living. I had a lot of good theology. I went to a sound seminary, right? But I was trembling at the prospect of coming to Italy with no promise of any income. I was convinced that God was calling us to do it, but I was afraid to do it. It's bad theology, beloved. It's bad theology. Shrinking back, you call yourself a Christian, to shrink back is bad theology. You've not learned God correctly. That's what he taught me standing on that street corner. Jim, this is not a theoretical exercise. Are you going to believe me and obey me or not? Uh, I think we all come to that place with God and we have to decide whether we will believe or whether we will be practical atheists um, in our life. So good theology leads to right believing, which leads to right living. 
An inadequate view of God will lead to an inadequate life. But if you catch a biblically accurate view of God, you can be fearless, you can be bold, you can be courageous, you can be a disciple. So I just want to remind you not to be a theoretical theist, but that lives like a practical atheist. It reminded me of the story in Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember uh, Christian was in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Does anybody remember this account? And he's been sitting down in the dungeon for several days and the giant keeps coming in and beating him. And suddenly he remembers. He has what? He has the key. He has the promise of God in his bosom. He's had the key all along. It's to know God correctly. He has the promise of God. He has the key in his bosom. Oh, guess what? It unlocks the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And oh, guess what? It unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. And he's free. Obviously, the point is you and I are free if we've learned God correctly. There is a sweetness and a freedom to life if we will actually apply what we know to be true about God, as I've been saying to you for six months or longer, we have license. We have license. We have license to obey the Lord. We have license to do Hebrews 11. So if you know much about the book of James, this is part of what God is calling every Christian to do, to live applied theology. Not to simply talk about uh, Jesus Christ or to hear about Jesus Christ, but to do the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our model in this. He didn't just talk about it, He did it. This is what He calls us to do. We are not theoretical theists. We are word doers. So let me give you the context here and we'll look at the text. The context... And I'll just pick up to try to introduce the context to you. In James 3.17, God describes what living a life of applied theology looks like. He says that it's living in the wisdom that comes from above. You may remember last week if you were here, we talked about living by the knowledge of the Holy One. Same, it's the same thing. We're living by the Word of God. In James 3.17, God says... This kind of life is it's, it's governed by peace and purity and gentleness and reasonableness, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And then in chapter 4, God begins to flesh out and focus on humility. James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, could anything worse be said than that God is opposed to the proud. <laughs> you know, you hear so much in the world about pride. I'm, a pride. You know, I'm proud of this. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of this. And there can be, a, I guess, a right sense in which it's okay. But God hates pride in a man. And He's going to talk to us about that. God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then He talks about humility, what it looks like. I'm still in chapter 4, verse 7. God says, God-pleasing humility, it's, it, it involves submission to God. Verse 8, it means drawing near to God. 
Verse 8 and verse 9, it means repenting of our sin. Verse 10, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Verse 11, using our tongue to edify, not to slander. Verse 12, to acknowledge God's authority as our judge. And in our text tonight, James reminds us that God-pleasing humility involves a right view of God, a right view of ourselves. Good theology means that we understand who God says He is and we understand who we are before God. So if, we're, if our theology is right, if our theology is biblical, we'll have an accurate view of ourselves. And this is one thing the Lord is saying to us tonight. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So what's wrong with the planning here and the talking that's going on in, the, in this verse? Is it wrong to plan? I mean, any, any good businessman, and this is the context in this verse, but really any person is going to plan, right? What's wrong here? What's the problem here? The issue is not the planning. The issue is the attitude. The issue is not what is said. It's what is not said. It's, it's how most of humanity lives. I get up every day and I just do what I want. I almost never think about God. Or I might give Him two minutes at the beginning of the day, a nice little devotion, maybe a little rote prayer. I'm, on, I'm, I'm out. I'm doing what I do. It's how most people live. It's even how many people who call themselves Christians live. They never think of God at all during the day. They don't realize they're wholly dependent on the sovereign will of God. This is the point that James is driving home to us in this text. Most people live as if God were non-existent or inconsequential. This is just a fact. And there's a profound arrogance in this. A deep and profound arrogance. Of course, unbelievers live like this, but... Again, what is shocking is how many Christians live like this. It's practical atheism. I just go about my business every day. God's not even really a, a, a pertinent afterthought. I never think of Him. That's the problem that's being highlighted in this verse. Christians who profess to believe in all the right things but often live with an utter disregard for God on a daily basis. Practical atheism. It's epidemic. Uh, I've seen it all my life. I've been in ministry for 30 years. It's epidemic. Um, being orthodox in our views, but effectively shutting God out of our daily lives. Taking no thought of God and in the everyday life of our marriage, with our kids, our career, our money, our investments, uh, uh, our, 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 our work, our entertainment. It's as if where we live, God's not welcome. And I trust that many of you sitting in here, this is not true, but my point is this. This is what God is indicting here in James. He's indicting this. 
God doesn't appreciate even unbelievers living like practical atheists. I mean, we're all His. Even if you don't love Him, you're His. You're, you're His intellectual property. He created you. You belong to Him whether you love Him or not. And certainly, it must grieve Him that those who would call themselves Christians would not offer their day up to Him on an ongoing basis. You know, That's what it means to pray without ceasing. That's what that means. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It means I never get up off my knees. No, that's not what that means. That means everything I encounter during the day, it's, it's God's. I give it to God. Lord, I praise You for this. I praise You for this blessing. Lord, help me in this trial. Whatever comes. Blessing or trial, I'm walking, I'm walking with God through it. I'm giving Him everything that comes to me during the day. So, what God is indicting here is a practical atheism. It made me think of the guy over in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to turn over there real quick. Luke chapter 12 and take a look. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read from verse 16 following to 21. Luke chapter 12, give you a minute to get over there. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. You guys are familiar with this. Very famous parable of Jesus. I think the young adults, I think we looked at this a month or two ago. Luke 12, 16. And Jesus told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Verse 21, So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So my question to you is, what mistake did this man make? What mistake does he make? He makes a number of mistakes. But, anything come to your mind? Exactly. This man is blessed and he never even gives God a thought. Much less a thank you. God is outside his thinking. God is out of, out of his thinking. And did you see the orgy of personal pronouns? I think there are 12 in my translation. It's all about him. How many people who call themselves Christians live every day and it's all about me? It's all about me. Never give God a thought. It's all about this guy. You know, this guy, he thinks the grain is his. Wrong! It's not his. Nothing is his. Just like you. Nothing is yours. You think, well, this is mine. No, none of it is yours. God says, I am the God of heaven and earth. The earth is mine and all it contains. Right? It's the Lord's. You don't really own anything. You're only a steward. You're only a steward. Even of your children, you're only a steward of your children. You don't really own anything. You came in with nothing. You're going out with nothing. 
we don't really own anything here. We're simply stewards. That was one mistake he made. The other one is, he believed he had many years wrong. God says, tonight your soul is required of you. He just took for granted that, you know, tomorrow will be like today, and the next day will be like today, and the next day will be like, to, uh, like it was. It's, it's taking God's goodness, God's bounty for granted every single day when I wake up, I take it for granted. I can see, I can think, I can hear, I can walk, I can dream, I can hope, I can love. I have property. I have means. I have a career. I have talents. It's all a gift, beloved. It's all a gift. This is the point of the text. It's all a gift. You're feeling sorry for yourself about something? It's cliche, but it's true. Just count your blessings. Just start to write them down. You won't feel sorry for yourself very long, I promise. If you will honestly begin to count your blessings. You know, all we do, we just want to focus on the, the thing we don't like. So we spend all our time focusing on the thing that's not right or the thing I wish I could change. Guess what? You can't change it, most likely. But God doesn't mean for you to simply look at it and look at it and dwell on it and be anxious about it and fret about it and make everyone around you miserable because you can't change this. Why don't you thank the Lord for the 10,000 things that are right instead of the one or two or three things that aren't just like you want them to be? There's a great lesson here for us, beloved. This guy makes a huge mistake. God calls him a fool. He's a, he's a practical atheist. He never considers God in the blessing that comes his way. He just thinks it's all about him. Beloved, I hope that uh, none of us would be guilty of that. Verse 14. Just the first thought here in verse 14. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. James says it's wrong. He's saying it's not wrong to plan. But it's wrong to plan without taking God into account. Because you're an ignorant person. We are all ignorant. We are not omniscient. We don't have knowledge of tomorrow. We're, we're all ignorant of tomorrow. We can't control one thing about tomorrow. We can't control one thing about today. Ultimately. Um... So that's the, the first thought here. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We are hopelessly ignorant in that regard. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We are not. We don't know what tomorrow brings. The Bible tells us that God knows the Word before it's on our tongue. Psalm 139. The Bible tells us that God knows the thought that comes into our mind. Ezekiel 11. The Bible tells us that God knows what is in the darkness. Daniel 2. The Bible tells us that God, uh, that all things are laid, are open and laid bare before His eyes. Hebrews 4. And the Bible tells us that God has infinite knowledge. Psalm 147. We don't know what tomorrow brings, beloved. 
We don't know, but He does. Do you see the arrogance? I, this is one thing I comment to Karen all the time. It's, it's one of my most common things to say. I, I watch the news, um, and I watch some current event, or I watch some man doing something, or giving a speech, or talking about this, or interacting with them. And of course, God is completely out of the picture. No one, ever, no one even thinks about God, although God is upholding every human being in that room, right? God is, is, is upholding. You, you, you don't breathe again unless it's the will of God. Your heart doesn't beat again unless it's the will of God. Your brain doesn't fire again unless it's the will of God. But God is left out completely and totally. We do not know what tomorrow will be like, but He does. He does. I love how A.W. Pink talks about this. He said, God knows everything, everything actual, everything possible, all events and all creatures of the past, present, and future. C.S. Lewis says, everyone who believes in God, at least the biblical God, at all believes that He knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. God is omniscient. We are not. We are contingent upon His mercy and His grace and Him upholding us. I love Acts 17.28. It really, if you'll think, think about Acts 17.28, it'll keep you humble. It says, in Him we live and move and have our being. In Him we live and move and have our being. You know, I, I think most of mankind believe they're, they're little sovereigns, they're autonomous. I run on my own energy. You know, I, I'm running apart from God. What God thinks or means to do or purposes to do or wants to do, it doesn't really matter. I run, I run automatically. I, I, have, I have life in me. I have energy in me. The Bible is actually telling us that our life is derived. In Him we live, we, we live and move and have our being, right? If we're walking around, it's because God has willed for it to be so. I love uh, one of the other English translations. It says, in Him we exist. One of the paraphrases says, in Him we are. This is what God is addressing in this text. Your arrogance, my arrogance. Your thanklessness, my thanklessness. Everything we have, everything we are, it's from the good and gracious hand of God. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but He does. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. I love how American theologian John Gerstner, he says, you know, he says, God is upholding us every moment, moment by moment, or we would cease to exist. It made me think of Hebrews 1, 3, that God upholds all things by the Word of His power. I was listening to John MacArthur. I was exercising this week and I was listening to one of his sermons. Uh, and he, he mentioned 2 Peter 3.10. He talked about the atomic dissolution. You know, you, you know the, the text there in 2 Peter where it talks about how everything will burn with intense heat. The elements will burn with intense heat. You remember that text? And, and MacArthur talks about this is atomic dissolution. This is when God stops holding the, the nucleus and the electron and the proton and the neutron and the positron together. He just lets it fly apart. You know, I was studying the strong force physicist 
they, they talk about the strong force in the, in, the, in the atom, right? They don't really understand it, but they, they say, well, there's a strong force that holds it all together. It's the Word of God. It's Hebrews 1.3. God upholds His creation by the Word of His power. And when God ceases to uphold His creation by the Word of its power, there will be a nuclear atomic dissolution. And the world will burn up. I believe that's accurate. You know, uh, that's my view anyway of 2 Peter 3.10. The strong force in the atom. It's the Word of God. Verse 14, the second thought here is you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I think the... You know, I use it in the context when I remind you so often that you're a vapor, it just means you're transitory. But I think here also the, the point is that you should have some humility about this. You should have some humility before God. You're a vapor. You're a vapor upon the earth. The ESV says you're like a mist. One paraphrase says you're like a puff of smoke. Another paraphrase says you're like a wisp of fog. Are you confident in yourself? And that you can make plans without consulting God? Do you think you can live without consulting God? Do you think you're self-sufficient? Do you believe you're a little, uh, a little sovereign? Beloved, this is all arrogance before God. It's all arrogance. I know that Maybe some of you don't have never thought about it this way, but it is arrogance. He's going to tell us in, a, in the next verse or two, it's arrogance. This kind of thinking, this kind of living, it's arrogance before God. I always go back to this, but it's true. If you're not in hell, you're the beneficiary of the grace of God and His benevolent will because surely that's where you should be. Surely that's where I should be. If you, don't know that, if you don't know that about yourself, you haven't understood the Bible. You should be in hell right now. It's only by the mercy and grace of God that you are not and I am not. God talks about this a lot. I think He wants us to understand it. Psalm 103.15, He says, Your existence is like grass. Psalm 78.39, He says, Your life is like a breeze. Ecclesiastes 6.12, He says, You're like a shadow. Psalm 39.6, He says, You're like a phantom. Psalm 39.11, He says, You're like a breath. Job 14.2, He says, You're like a flower that withers. You are transitory. You are passing, you are passing through and you are passing away. It seems like if we understand this, this would engender some humility before God. It seems to me. And I think this is the, the reason He talks to us this way, that we might indeed have some humility in our lives. James is exhorting us to not only know our theology, but to speak our theology as we go further into the text. To live and talk like we know and acknowledge and understand that God is God and we are not. To live good theology. To understand that He's an awesome God and I am a vapor. And every good thing that comes to me comes by His gracious, good 
and you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Beloved, you are a puff of smoke. Does it humble you? It should. It's meant to. It's meant to humble you in the right way. You're a puff of smoke. (laughs) But this great God has loved you and redeemed you. This text should humble us without demeaning us or diminishing us. Do you understand the point? We should be humbled. We should be humble sons and daughters of the King. That's humbled sons and daughters of the King. Um, that's one of the main points of James. Verse 15, Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. If God wills. If God wills. If God wills. If God doesn't will, it doesn't matter how much you will, it's not going to happen for you. If God doesn't will it, beloved, He's sovereign. You heard me pray it. He's sovereign over the asteroid on the farthest side of the farthest galaxy and He's sovereign the electron orbiting the nucleus of the atom. He's sovereign. And everything in between, He's sovereign. He is sovereign. This is a beautiful thing for us. For those of us who will embrace it and own it. Verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. If you're not acknowledging the will of God, it's by default from the text, arrogance. The will of God in your, again, your your relationships, your marriage, your singleness, your job, your studies, your career, whatever. You're submitting it to the will of God. And he says it's important how we talk about it. It's important how you talk about it. You don't just honor God in your deeds. You honor God in your words. You ought to say this. You ought to acknowledge that I'm God. You ought to acknowledge that I'm God in your marriage and in your money, and in your church, and in your business. You should acknowledge it. You should speak it. Your theology should be on your tongue. It's not just hidden in my heart. That's a good thing. But it's on my tongue. People around me hear me say, if God wills. That's one thing I always remember about Tez. I say, are you coming Thursday night? God willing, I'm coming Thursday night, you know? And I know it's, it's something that, that the, the Middle East... Uh, has a, 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 maybe a better, a better grasp of. And we don't say it simply as a, an empty formula, right? It's not just words we use by rote, but we, God willing, God willing. Because it's true, beloved. It's true. If God's not willing, Tez isn't going to be there Thursday night. He's not going to be there. Nor am I. <laughs> if God's not willing... Uh, I'm not going to be there only if He is willing. Made me think of that great text, 2 Corinthians 2.14, which I mention to you often. We are to be the sweet aroma of Christ in every place. We're supposed to smell like God in every place. But guess what? People are supposed to hear us speak about God in every place. 
God is supposed to be on our tongue. Our theology is supposed to be on our tongue. God willing, we'll do that. God willing. Some unbelievers are supposed to ask you, what do you mean God willing? What are you talking about? It's your, your opportunity to, to introduce Him to the sovereignty of the biblical God, which extends to what? How does the Bible talk about it? <laughs> From the casting of the lot to the falling of a sparrow. Now, this is the first century way or uh, the Old Testament way to talk about uh, God's sovereignty. I mean, if God were writing the Bible today, He would probably talk about the atom and the electron and some stuff like that maybe. I don't know. God is sovereign. In the casting of the lot, He's sovereign. In the falling of a sparrow, there are countless trillions of sparrows circling the earth. Not one falls to the ground apart from the sovereign will of God. If the Lord wills, we shall live and we shall do this or that. To talk about God's sovereignty is simply to acknowledge that He's God. He's supreme in power and authority. He has no peer. He has no colleague. He has no equal. As I said to you earlier, there's not one maverick molecule in all the universe. He rules them all. They are subject to His will. Before Him, angels, devils, demons, presidents, popes, kings, and all men are less than grasshoppers. David said it perfectly in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt Yourself as head over all and You rule over all. Jehoshaphat got it right too. 2 Chronicles 20. O Lord, You are God in heaven. You are ruler over all kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in Your hands so that no one can stand against you. Nebuchadnezzar got it right. Daniel chapter 4. For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay His hand. Job said it correctly. Whatever God desires, He does it. Job chapter 23. No purpose of God can be thwarted. Job chapter 42. Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He <clears throat> this is the sovereignty of God. I delight in it. I delight in it. God means for you to delight in it. Our awesome God commands seas to open and storms to cease. I was listening to Piper this afternoon actually. <laughs> he was talking about this. What happened when Jesus was in the storm with His men? What happened? Tell me what happened. You guys know this story, right? They were afraid. The men were afraid. What did Jesus do? He was afraid! He couldn't stop it! The storm was too powerful for Him! Right? Jesus was afraid. He was cowering in the bottom of the boat, right? Is that what happened? He said, be still! Bam! Every atom obeyed. <laughs> Every atom obeyed. And I love what Piper said. He said, if you don't believe that about Jesus Christ, you have some cartoon Jesus. Beloved, God's sovereign in the tsunami. 
I know this is hard for unbelievers to hear. It's even hard for possibly for uh, immature or unregenerate church members to hear. God is sovereign in the storm. When He says, be still, it is stilled. He is sovereign, beloved. If you don't believe that He is, I don't know what God you're worshiping. Certainly not the God of the Bible. But our God commands and the sun stands still. Our God commands and ravens feed His prophet. Our God commands and fire does not consume His children. Our God commands and dead men come out of tombs. And although this chafes most, uh, particularly all unbelievers and even many who call themselves Christians, Proverbs 21.1, God says, The king's heart is like channels of water in my hand. I turn it whatever way I wish. There may not be a higher divine sovereignty verse than Ephesians 1.11. I work all things according to the counsel of my will. And it's true, beloved, when you start talking about God's sovereignty in all things, from the casting of a lot to the falling of a sparrow, a lot of people get tense about it. A lot of people don't understand it. There's a mountain of theology. There's a, there's a, there's a mountain of theology in rightly talking about the sovereignty of God in a fallen world. But what I just want to challenge you to do, will you bow to the truth that God is sovereign or will you object? Will you object because you can't reconcile it with the, the, the natural disasters that you see in the world or you can't reconcile it to the affairs of men? You can't reconcile it to the affairs of nations? Will you bow to the biblical truth that God is sovereign in all things or will you object? I have to tell you, I meet quite a few Christians, quote-unquote, who object. They don't mind a cartoon God, but I'll have none of this sovereign God. You know, what's the first questions the unbelievers ask when the tsunami comes? Where's God? Where's God? Where is He? They indict God. They object to God who has every right to judge this world. And we've talked about this before. If you have questions about this, I'll direct you to, to my sermon on the podcast. This world has fallen and it's under judgment. The wrath of God's being revealed from, from heaven against all ungodliness, Romans chapter 1. But Romans chapter 2 is, too, true, uh, chapter two is, is, is true as well. God is offering grace and mercy to any who would repent and believe. But you and I are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised tomorrow. That's why it's arrogant to walk the planet and not be reconciled to Jesus Christ. That's why it's arrogant. It's arrogant. It's foolish and it's arrogant. You need a Savior just as I need a Savior so the Bible says that all things, everything, is under the sovereign control of God. Paul says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Romans 11.36 He's not called King of kings for no reason. So as I considered these things, um, 
I'm just going to echo what we've been talking about for the last six months. Shame on us if we don't live our Christianity huge. We have a sovereign God. The bullet can't hit us unless it's the will of God. The terrorist can't kill us unless it's the will of God. The plane's not going down unless it's the will of God. The business is not going to fail unless it's the will of God. Are we fatalists? No. We are not fatalists. We just receive what comes into our life as the will of God through His sovereign and benevolent hand. This is what Bible believers do. Even with the hard thing. And I've told you about this woman that Karen and I love in Little Rock who lost, who lost five of her family members in the tornado two springs ago. She's on the prayer list. We're still praying for her. She knows these things are true. And when she buries her children and her husband, she knows her God is sovereign. She doesn't understand, but she bows. She bows. And she honors God in her speech. And she honors God in her tears. And she honors God in in going on with life and speaking biblically about God. This is a big deal with God, beloved. It's a big deal. It should be a big deal for us. James says to omit God from your plans and your speech is to boast in arrogance. I like how the message paraphrases this. Eugene Peterson says, You are full of your grandiose selves and all such vaunting self-importance is evil. Verse 17, and we're done. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Therefore, do not sin in this. Have a right view of God. Have a right view of yourself. And let it be on your tongue. Let the men and women around you hear about your God. Let it come off of your tongue. Let it come off of your tongue. My God's a sovereign God. You say, well, Jim, I I don't know if I can defend it out in the world. Well, that's your problem. Study it. Study it. Get to the place where you can talk about it with your unbelieving friends. And of course, many of them will reject what you're saying, but that's to be expected. Unbelievers act like unbelievers until they're not unbelievers anymore. And the way they become not unbelieving anymore is because you're sowing good seed, you're loving them, you're serving them, you're giving them a good witness, and bam! God turns them on. God lights them up. Right? God lights them up with the truth. So you just do your job. God will do His job. So we are to submit all aspects and plans of our life to the sovereign will of God. Not to do so is sin. Not to acknowledge and honor God is sovereign in our speech is arrogance. I'm not saying we have to add it to every sentence we speak. That's not what I'm saying. But it should pepper... It should season our speech as I talk about a sovereign God. So, God-pleasing humility, it's manifested in our submission to God's sovereign will and in our acknowledgement of that submission as we speak rightly about Him. So, some here in arrogance may have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to say it's arrogance not to come to Christ. It's, it's the epitome of arrogance. It's saying, I don't need a Savior. I'm okay. My religion's enough. 
or my good deeds are enough, or I'm better than that guy kind of thinking. It's just unvarnished arrogance not to understand that you need to run to Jesus. So I invite you to come to Jesus tonight. Some here may have made a profession of faith in Jesus at some point in their lives, but in arrogance they have never truly surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior. Beloved, this is arrogance. To say you're a Christian, but you don't submit to His Lordship, this is arrogance. This is arrogance before God. So I exhort you to genuinely come to Christ. No more playing church. Genuinely come to Christ. Follow Him in believers' baptism. Be His disciple in the world. Let it be in your deeds and on your tongue. Lastly, some here simply need to have a Holy Spirit epiphany. You just need to have a sudden intuitive realization that your God is God and you don't ever have to be afraid again. (laughs) And so you can go out in the world and live it huge. So, Christian, live your good theology. Your God is a sovereign God. You don't have to live it small anymore. No more practical atheism. So the challenge of the text tonight is to, is to live worthy and speak worthy. Live worthy of this great God and speak worthy of this great God. I think it's one of our greatest failings out in the world. And I own it for myself at times. It's not speaking the name at every opportunity. Not speaking the name. And I've, I've counseled you on this. Don't use the generic word for God. Don't talk about about God in a generic sense. You talk about Jesus Christ. Everybody, you know, 95% of the, of, of the world's population, they talk about some kind of God. You know, there are a few who are atheists, but they have their own God. Their, their God is themselves. But my challenge to you always is, you speak the name of Jesus Christ in your orbit. You speak the name of Jesus Christ. As often as possible. As often as possible. Speak the name of Jesus Christ as often as possible. Speak His name. (laughs) It's our great privilege, beloved. It's our great privilege to speak His name. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Speak His name, beloved. Live worthy. Speak worthy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this text. Thank You for this reminder. Lord, forgive us if we've been arrogant in our thinking and arrogant in our speaking. Lord, we want to present a true picture of You out in the world. I pray that You would help us. I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that You could use us in this way. I pray that we would speak the name of Christ much and often. Lord, help us in all areas of our life where we are still arrogant, where we maybe have not yet submitted every area of our life to Your Lordship and control. Lord, we understand that this is what You've called us to as Christians. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's about submission to the fact that You are Lord of heaven and earth. Help us to live worthy, Lord. Help us to speak worthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.